Welcome to Menopause Uprising, the Wellness Warrior podcast with me, Catherine O'Keefe. On today's podcast, I'm thrilled to be chatting to Suzanne O'Sullivan, and we are delving deep into all issues uh, relating to your bladder health in the menopause years. This is an area I've delved into several times over the last few years, and I always feel we can never talk enough about this. Suzanne is a guru on all things bladder health. Hope you enjoy the podcast. So, as many people know, I am a big fan of talking about all aspects of menopause. And I guess one of the big areas that I feel it is getting more attraction, but needs more discussion is very much around the whole pelvic area. You know, what happens in the bladder, what happens in relation to vaginal health, etc. And Suzanne, I know you equally share a great passion in this area in terms of, you know, women's health and just getting the word out there, right? Um, Absolutely. When, when we, when, you know, what are your thoughts in terms of, I guess one thing is, you know, why aren't we talking enough about good pelvic core health, good bladder health in these years or in, in any years, I guess? I suppose in, in a way it's a lot, like a lot of other women's health issues. Um, women have a bit of an expectation, you know, they, they have babies they, and then things change afterwards and then they age and things change with that. And they sort of think, oh, it's normal or it's, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it, they're so busy that they let a lot of very bothersome symptoms just sort of simmer in the background and get worse and worse before they seek help. That's certainly something I see all the time. So by the time women come to me, they've had these problems for years and years, but they haven't had time to think about themselves. They've been busy raising children, doing everything else. And only when it's really bad do they actually seek help, which is a real shame. And I don't know whether that's part of the lack of conversation around these issues. Often they go to the GP with more acute health issues, but then Sometimes they'll mention other things, but often they won't because, again, they're just those those personal issues are at the very bottom of the list for them in their lives and, you know, in their psyche in a way. And it's only then maybe when kids leave or when, you know, they have more time to think about themselves or things get so much worse that they're just miserable that they actually seek help. So I think that we all have this little bit of an expectation that, you know, these symptoms are part of being a woman, part of having babies and part of these things. And they're also very embarrassing things to talk about. So talking about incontinence and talking about sexual uh, problems carries a bit of shame and embarrassment. So it's not something that you're going to be sitting there throwing your hand up saying, here I am, I've got problems like this because they're not part of your normal discussion on a day-to-day -day basis, but they are real issues and they are so common. And in fact, because all women will have menopause, these problems will affect pretty much all women. Mm. And I think you just touched on something earlier there that I see a lot is that it impacts. So it impacts every part of a person's life because, mm. you know, if you are concerned about maybe a bit of stress incontinence or something like that, you're going to be nervous when you go out. You might be nervous when you're running. You might be nervous if you're out. Maybe, I don't know, if you're dancing or something. So it and it, I have seen with some women, it actually stops them doing activities or, you know, going to events because it becomes quite, quite an issue. And I think that's extremely, extremely sad. 
And I think part of it is, is that it's a slow burn. So when these problems develop, they're very occasional initially. You know, the accident will happen once every few months and, and then the problem increases over time. And, and again, it's sort of in the background and, and the more it happens, the more people expect maybe that's going to happen. They definitely, women will alter what they do. They'll alter what they wear. So you'll see women coming in only wearing black trousers and, and dark colors. And, you know, that's a, that's a terrible shame I think one of the things that has bothered me recently as well is the ads that are out there for incontinence pads and you have women there giggling and sort of saying it's normal but it's it's not normal the fact that it's common doesn't make it normal and doesn't make it an acceptable thing for people to just have to put up with or for women to live with when there is a lot out there that can be done to help those those situations you know even talking about it is is a helpful situation but there's so much that can be done to get rid of the problems there's mm -hmm. so much that can be done and that's part of the the really important end of the discussion is a it's there b it's very very common but c there's so much that can be done to make things go away these problems go away and stop affecting people in, in such a horrible way because it's incontinence especially you know it creeps up it alters what you do, it alters what you wear, it alters how you feel about yourself. It alters how you feel about yourself in terms of a woman, in terms of sexual function, relationships, all of these things, it chips away at you. And it's not something that's going to kill you. It's not cancer or heart disease, but it's something that will absolutely chip away at people and make women feel less than they are. And it's associated with such shame and embarrassment. It's, it's awful to see you know what I mean? It's great to be able to help people, but what I see is often less so than before. People have had this for years and years, and they only come at the last minute. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the kind of the the shame and embarrassment behind it. And I mean, look, thankfully, like as we've seen, and and you're well aware of, like. The, the conversation around menopause has changed a lot in the last number of years that it's out there. But I, I've always said, and I, I really do believe this, that getting the conversation about menopause is one part of the, 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 the story. It's getting underneath now is even a bigger part of it. So it's talking about, you know, the vaginal dryness, vaginal atrophy, the bladder issues. You know, we talk about the hot flushes and the night sweats with no problem whatsoever, the stereotypical but, you know, it's these issues that, as you know, like they deeply impact on the psychological aspects and on a woman's life. And I think I think that's where um, early prevention and being aware of what you can do, like only last night. I was talking to a friend of mine um, who had lived in France for a couple of years and she was basically saying, you know, that um, after she'd had uh, one of her kids in France, straight away she had pelvic um, physio after, you know, a few weeks after the birth. She, you know, the, the treatment there around core health and pelvic health seems to be vastly different to what we have here in Ireland and the awareness of it as well, I guess. And, I agree completely. Yeah, and just to mention the ads, oh my God, those incontinence ads, I honestly, honestly, they they make my blood boil because where I see them coming on a lot is my is when the, the my, I have three boys when they're watching sports. For some reason, you see a lot of them. And the boys would yeah. say to me, What what is this about? And you're kind of trying to explain, like you just said, Suzanne, this isn't normal. But they think it is because they're forever seeing these ads. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it's something I have a huge bugbear about. And uh, <laughs> I think they're driven by the wrong thing. You know, obviously there's a, you know, it's it's just, yeah, it's it's infuriating and it's unacceptable and it's demeaning and diminishing in so many levels. Mm. Um, you know, and I, you know, what you want to get out there is this is not the solution. Pads are not the solution. Yes, they're part of the solution, but they are not the ultimate solution. And there's one ad, I think a photo of a, a young mother holding a baby and she's wearing, you know, disposable, you know, lace, lace edged paper underwear, nappies effectively. And I mean, it's just dreadful. Yeah. Yeah. So let's just, um, I guess, take it back a bit. But so what, what let's just say you're in your perimenopause years, maybe you're in your mid 40s and late 40s and you start to notice a little bit of, you know, maybe you cough and you have a little leak um, or something like that. What what should women be aware of and what should they look out for? And then maybe, you know, if we could talk about, you know, where to start, what can they do? I suppose there are, there are a few things going on from the 40s on, the perimenopause on, the estri your estrogen levels are falling and your pelvic floor, your bladder, your vagina, your perianal area, your rectal area, all of that area is full of estrogen receptors. And as estrogen levels fall, those estrogen receptors are, are, are getting less estrogen to them. And ultimately what happens is that the vaginal skin and the bladder is attached anteriorly to the vaginal anterior vaginal wall the rectum is attached to the posterior vaginal wall but that skin starts to have a reduce a reduction in blood supply and it starts getting thinner over time the skin gets much thinner it gets very dry the vagina itself actually shrinks so often people think oh prolapse it, you, your connective tissue gives as you age actually your connective tissue stiffens but, um, and your collagen turns over less, but the, the, the vagina itself actually shrinks and the bladder loses the estrogen supplied to it. So it tends to actually become much more irritable. So you have two types of incontinence in women. The first one, as you mentioned, is stress incontinence. And typically stress incontinence is the more predominant incontinence we see in premenopausal women because it's related to pregnancy and childbirth. But overactive bladder, which is associated with frequency, urgency, getting up at night, not making it to the toilet on time, that's the type of bladder problem that becomes much more common uh, in perimenopause and into menopause. And it's a combination of obviously falling estrogen levels, but also of aging. So we know that by the late 50s, both men and women have similar, just under 20% rates of overactive bladder, so urgency, frequency, uh, getting up at night and not making it to the toilet on time. So there, there are two things, I suppose, going on with menopause. You've got the, the lack of estrogen and that causes one specific thing, but you also have the effect of aging. And again, that's inevitable and you can't escape from it. But the, the, the impact of lack of estrogen to the vaginal tissues, to the bladder mucosa, the vaginal mucosa and that area is is absolutely huge and as you say you've got the perimenopause that's when there still is some estrogen the estrogen just plummets after the menopause and it's a one-way street that never recovers so the impact of it just gets worse and worse and worse and if you look at the external genitalia or the vulva of of women of different ages you'll see that the, as, as time goes by and as aging and further into the menopause happens, those tissue changes become more and more profound. Um, so I suppose being 
being aware of what happens is really important. So if you have the typical stress incontinence, so a leak with coughing and sneezing, the first step is to, well, either say to your GP, but physiotherapy is always the first step. And there are fantastic physiotherapists in Ireland. You need to see a women's health qualified physio. So a general musculoskeletal physiotherapist who doesn't have a women's health qualification will not give you the help you need because that physio who is a women's health qualification will actually do a vaginal examination, will look at the pelvic floor, will measure the muscle strength in the pelvic floor and will give a program of, of exercises and interventions that will improve muscle contraction, muscle tone, uh, muscle support of the pelvic floor, vagina and the uh, bladder neck. And I was just saying to you earlier, uh, I was actually with Maeve Whelan myself this week because um, I check in with Maeve every so often. Yes, so shout conscious. out to Maeve. <laughs> but I'm just so conscious like that of maintaining um, my core health. And I think I obviously I can see firsthand the benefit of going to um you know going to a women's health specialist. It's so essential. And I, I would definitely say, you know, um it's all about being aware and kind of you know keeping ahead of it and not you know not putting your head in the sand, not adopting the ostrich approach Absolutely. and thinking thinking this will solve itself because it won't on its own, right? It needs it needs work. When it's happening to you it's not going to go away by itself. That's the problem. And often over time, it will probably get worse. So if you can get in early, that's great. And there are other things out there. You've mentioned Yvonne already. You know, you've got EVB sport shorts or support garments that can help. So women who only leak, for example, if they're doing high impact exercises or where that's affecting the most, you know, there are different interventions and different levels of interventions. Physio is great because it's completely safe and there's nothing that can go wrong. It can only make you better. EVB sport shorts are great. There are other products out there that can be helpful for specific conditions. And, you know, then there are obviously more bigger interventions, uh, for example, medical treatments, surgical treatments, laser, that kind of thing that can come, that are available, but, you know, you can approach in your own time when you're ready, et cetera. And, and Suzanne, just that's interesting when you just to mention the surgical side of it. And um, you, you remember uh, years ago, I know there, there was a big um, talk about this in the UK in relation to the mesh and mm -hmm. the issues that created. Now, I, I, I know there was similar here, um, mm -hmm. but didn't get as much awareness, not to my knowledge anyway, as it would have gotten in the UK. But is that is that surgery still a viable option or um, where where is that at? So there are different surgical interventions and have been for years. Interestingly, um, the, the tapes or mesh procedures have been shown over and over again uh, in huge uh, scientific studies to still be the safest and best intervention. Are they perfect? Absolutely not. The perfect surgical intervention, unfortunately, does not exist. So all over the world, uh, tapes are being done. I suppose the, the, the mistakes and problems that happened was that they sometimes were being done by generalist gynecologists or people who weren't specifically subspecialized in urogynecology or in urology dealing with incontinence. And that's something that we are working on. So uh, we have a, a, a Continence Foundation of Ireland and a, a group of specialists here. And we've been doing a lot of work in the background on how to make 
incontinence surgery at all levels safe and appropriate for patients for women so we've got new national guidelines uh, that uh, i've been working on they'll be coming out in the next few months on the management of stress incontinence from primary care through physio through specialist units that are now being really well resourced and, and set up so we've we we're coming we've actually come come a long way what that will mean is that in, you know that there will be centers doing these procedures they will only be done by subspecialists that might make access a little bit more difficult initially because they were being done you know what I mean more commonly but I think patient selection and patient counseling on being offered all options of surgical treatment and being able to choose the one that suits you most that you are happiest with the risk benefit ratio and the results etc that's you know part of the guideline we'll have consent forms that are very detailed and discuss all options and the, the, the pros and cons the success failure rates and risks associated with each one so one of the things that has come out of that is that there has been a lot of uh, again negative publicity but maybe an increased awareness different expectations and the importance that knowledge and information and facts are really important and getting you know and patient engagement so the woman deciding okay this is this these are the treatments are available we will say to you know basically to all women that you should have physiotherapy first because that's the that's that's best practice and then if and when that doesn't work what's available what are the choices what are the pros and cons and and you know open disclosure open engagement and down to the woman's choice provided that is supported with good information good knowledge good consent techniques all of that that sounds great that's fantastic and i must say uh, you when you have more on that you can share the details with me and i can send it out but but that that is a great that is great and it's a great step forward because you know, obviously, I, I would hear a lot about, you know, in nursing homes and so forth about how, you know, most female patients are on incontinence pads and so forth. And I think, you know, that, as we've said earlier, it's not, it shouldn't be classified as normal. We should be preempting it now, you know, in the younger in years. There's a very interesting study, which I it's a bit of a it's a it's a bit of a shocker, really, but done several years ago that showed that if you you know were an, an older woman, uh, and I think actually they applied to men as well, but if you're an older person, um, and you have compared you have incontinence compared to another older person with absolutely every you know controlled for the same things across all health aspects who doesn't have incontinence, you are twice as likely to be in residential care or a nursing home as the person who doesn't have urinary incontinence. So if you think about the impact on the individual, the impact on health economics, the impact on society, you know, that one thing, just having urinary incontinence, if, if you can take that out of the equation, you're half as likely to be in nursing home care and requiring that level of support. You're twice as likely to be living independently in the community with your family and social support around you. So, yeah, incontinence is something that uh, isn't, again, life threatening, but has massive impacts, yeah. especially in the aging population. And in fairness, there is more um, information around it now. Yeah, no, that. 
that that's great isn't it and you know as we say definitely needed so it's brilliant i mean look we we know we are making progress with the work the department of health are doing on, around women's health it's there's a lot to be done but I, you know at least you know i think the wheels are churning it's just going to take <laughs> take some more time so just to that's just to go back in terms of um so you know when we talk about from the bladder part and i would like to just touch on the the vaginal atrophy in a few minutes but when we look at it so that we've talked about the the, the stress incontinence is there any you know what else would you say um women should be looking out for in kind of those perimenopause years around the uh, around the, the bladder health I suppose um, a few things. Uh, the overactive bladder is actually what becomes more predominant uh, in the perimenopause and postmenopause. So, and that's a, a feeling of having difficulty holding on, feeling like you want to go more often, uh, getting up more at night. So, I would say to all of them very simply your bladder's job is to store urine. And if, you know, as estrogen levels drop, the bladder it does become more irritable. But if you just keep holding on and go as few times as possible, then your bladder will maintain its ability to do its job. Often people, women will get into a cycle if they find that sometimes it's harder for them to hold on, that they'll go just, so I'm going out the door, I'll go now so I don't get you know, caught later and I'm in town and I see a toilet, well, I'll go now so I don't get caught later. And constantly emptying your bladder when it's not full is the worst thing you can do. So cutting down and holding on every time you need to empty your bladder is a really good practice to do. If you find that you're waking up at night and a lot of people will wake up and then think, oh, my bladder, you know, they'll, they'll think about their bladder, they'll feel their bladder, and then they say, well, I won't go back to sleep until I empty my bladder. So they start getting up. And again, you're better off staying in your bed stop getting up at night, the more, there is a little bit, again, and it's related to aging, where the bladder may need to be emptied more at night. But again, getting up at night is very common in older age. And the more you do, the more likely you are, again, in more extreme older age, fall, break your hip, the impact on, again, your health, you know, in terms of, of life-threatening or life-changing uh, sequelae is is a bigger and bigger issue so holding on going as few times as you can and um not getting up at night that's number one the the sensation of sometimes having infections or cystitis sensation again becomes much more common into the menopause and in older age and sometimes you'll have women who think you know that there may well be an infection but sometimes they think that they're getting recurrent infections so Going to your GP and not having antibiotics until a specimen is sent to the lab is really important. If women think they're getting uh, recurrent infections, the, the lab specimen needs to be done because often the sensation might be there, but it's actually not an infection. And you don't want to be taking unnecessary antibiotics and then developing resistance to antibiotics for bladder infections. So making sure that those symptoms are investigated and followed up properly is really important. And there are, and then if you are getting this sensation or, or true recurrent infections, then there are simple things you can get over the counter like D-Manose, which is a natural product that is proven to reduce the risk of recurrent infections. And that's in a capsule or a sachet form. There are really good probiotics out there that are great for bladder and urinary tract. Uh, one of them is called BioCult ProCyan. And then there are raw probiotics, which are again shown, proven to be good for recurrent urinary tract infections. So there are options out there from that perspective. Again, uh, local estrogen therapy is fantastic 
fantastic in terms of a reducing true infections and b reducing the sensation of bladder irritability or cystitis so simple uh, things um what else in terms of bladder? I suppose no, knowing what to be, what's a red flag symptom. So if you ever see blood in your urine, even if, you, even if it is associated with an infection, blood is not normal and you need to see your GP and that needs to be investigated. That's very important. Okay. Well, that's, that's great. That's a, that's a whistle stop tour. <laughs> and I think that's really, really interesting what you mentioned about the sense of the cystitis because so many women I talk to say exactly that, Suzanne, and I'd always kind of say, and then they're, or they might think that they've trush and well, we, we talk about yes. that in dryness in a minute, but that they have that, oh, I have cystitis, you know, the doctor gives me, you know, that they have the prescription. And I always kind of say, but do you know 100% that you have a urinary infection? And because that sense is there. And is that sense because the bladder is irritable? Is that why that happens? So, well, sometimes you can get a, just a bad infection and, and, and that can be either, you know, your immune system may cure it yourself mm -hmm. or antibiotics may, may be required. But if you get a bad infection and there's inflammation, well, that inflammation, the bacteria may be gone and the infection may be gone, but the inflammation caused by that infection, it's like, uh, you know, getting a chest infection, the cough can stay for a long time afterwards. So the bladder mm -hmm. may be irritable and, you know, more sensitive for a long time afterwards. And sometimes it's at that time that you'll get this cycle of going more often and feeling like you can't hold on as well. And then the bladder starts to learn, well, okay, I'll feel full at a smaller volume and the bladder capacity can actually shrink. So you can actually, that that can lead into a, a problem that is a real issue, not just a sensation that can get worse and worse over time. And that's, again, if you can get back away from that and start holding on as much as you can and get your bladder back to doing its job, which is to store urine so you don't need to be beside the toilet constantly. Yeah. That's the, the aim with it. Now, sometimes that's just not possible. The bladder gets quite irritable and you can get urge incontinence. And the only, you know, the treatment then, if you're if you're actually having accidents, you can't help that. That's not a mm. sensation. It's not in your head. That's a problem. And there are treatments are very good medical treatments out there for it so you need to seek help if you're leaking if you're able to hold on but you feel like you just need to go just start bladder retraining and things like looking at what you drink so keeping your urine less acid so avoiding alcohol caffeinated drinks mm. people love green tea and don't realize that it's got 10 times the amount of caffeine that normal tea and coffee has <laughs> um, yeah that's citrus it Sorry, just on the green tea, I was uh, talking to, um, I was working with a woman, it's a couple of months ago, and yeah. um, she was having issues both with the bladder, but also with insomnia. And yes. she, she, was, she was great. She was doing everything right. And she was like, well, I'm, I don't drink caffeine. And I was like, there has to be something. We went through everything. Yeah. And she's like, well, I just drink green tea. So we ended up Googling the green tea that she was on. And I was trying to show her, look at the amount of caffeine that's actually in this green tea. Yeah. So, you know, it was like sometimes different types can, as you yeah. say, can contain more uh, more caffeine so i think it's just being really aware of what we're putting into our bodies is so so important absolutely and so you know again just look, looking at fluid smoking things like that can make a difference to the sensation and everything in your bladder but obviously if it's getting you down and it's becoming a problem 
go see your GP because there are simple interventions, as I say, simple medications that can help with that. And again, if you catch it earlier, then you're likely to get a much better response and get on top of it quicker, more, you know, with, with less intervention. Whereas if it, if it goes a long way, then it's harder to get back to normal and full bladder control. You just have a longer journey and maybe more interventions, etc. To get to see a pelvic health physio, do you need a referral from your GP no. or can you go direct? No, you can go direct. So there is at the Chartered Physiotherapists of Ireland have a website and you can look up that website and I think there's a there's a list of women's health qualified specialist physiotherapists on the Chartered Physiotherapist website, or you can email them and you can then find out who is available local to you. Obviously, um, that, you know, if your your GP will also have uh, HSE direct referral links to the um, HSE physiotherapy um, departments who are absolutely brilliant. So every area has a you know specialist women's health qualified physios. The access is very good, and these are brilliantly qualified, brilliant women. Fantastic, mostly most of them are women, but they're fantastic resource. Their expertise is unbelievable. Super. And what I'll do is I'll get that website from you, and I'll put it into the show notes so everyone. Mm -hmm can access it and just one other thing that you mentioned there and I'm not sure if you saw this during the week but um you mentioned probiotics and I just saw during the week that UCC um just your neighbors yes. <laughs> um John Crane and I think it's Professor yes. Yvonne Nolan they got 1.2 million funding yeah. to do research mm -hmm. into the impact on midlife health so oh my god I I I love the gut microbiome and the impact yeah. throughout the body well, so Cork Fergus Shannon and that, that group in Cork has absolutely led the world on that. They mm, are, haven't they just? They really have. Um, most, if not all, of the very the seminal work in that area has come from Cork and they just continue to go from strength to strength. And, and the interventions that are coming out of those research are really life-changing for a lot of medical conditions, cancer treatments, all of that kind of mm. thing. It's, it's fast. It's huge. Very, it's great to see it coming from Ireland. I, I, I find that just, I think it's brilliant. Um, and so one thing just before we move on, yeah. Catherine, I wanted to mention is there are also um, in all areas, in the HSE areas, continence specialist nurses as well, who are again qualified in looking at continence. Now, often they, you know, a lot of what they do is sometimes, you know, work in nursing homes and pads and that kind of thing, but they're also all qualified and trained in basic um, interventions, bladder retraining, fluid management, common sense, uh, you know, advice on bladder health and managing, you know, and advice and interventions on that. So the Continence Advisory Service is another fantastic resource that people should know about. Brilliant. Okay, great. We'll, we'll include all of these because um, I just know this is such a common issue um for so many women um as, as you know yourself so yeah i'll include all of those that's super and um, can we just touch on the whole area of the vaginal atrophy um for a few minutes because again what i find is i i am honestly beginning to think every woman experiences it at some point either in perimenopause postmenopause at some stage and i find there's great difficulty in opening the conversation 
with their GPs. And a lot of GPs would say the same to me that it takes them a good bit of time to actually, there's there, it's like the elephant in the room. They're they're skirting around the, the real issue to try and get women to open up and talk about it. I suppose, look, again, it's it's like unfortunately that the fact is is that every woman will experience and will develop and will get vaginal atrophy unless they use estrogen. That's the bottom line. So vaginal atrophy will happen to all women. The impact and the symptoms will vary, but I think I agree with you, especially, you know, my age, you're, you're looking, you, you, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, but you look at things so, a little bit differently when, you know, these you're, you're in that same age group as well. And um, I see a lot of women who will come with bladder issues, but then when you examine them, you can see that they've either had awful itching or that they've had skin problems that they've never mentioned. And you look at them and you say, you know, how long has this been going on for? And they've never said it to anybody and nobody's ever asked them either. And you can see that there has been, you know, really awful skin irritation and miserable symptoms that again have been sort of ignored. I suppose one of the things is a lot of the time in the after the menopause when itching happens, it's diagnosed as thrush. And I would say that most of the time, that's a misdiagnosis. It's not thrush. Thrush is less common actually after the menopause than before the menopause. So the itching is often as a result of irritation in the skin. Sometimes that can be, um, uh, a thing called lichen sclerosis, which is a low-grade benign inflammatory skin condition of the vulva, um, typically associated with itching at night. That's very easily treatable with um, steroid ointment. But again, it's it's actually diagnosing it or see, you know having a history, diagnosing it, and then keeping an eye on that to make sure that changes you know that that, that the process that you're on top of. Of the process so that's again something that people need to be aware of that's easily treatable but needs to be diagnosed as well and um, you can see you know again sometimes uh where the, the vaginal skin has become very thin and very dry and where splits are happening during intercourse so women are getting fissures and splitting during intercourse and pain as a result of that and that again that's a simple thing it's, it's a horrible symptom to have and it has a huge impact on a relationship and you know the the your attitude as an older woman towards sex if, if every time you have intercourse it's hurting or it's dry your skin is splitting or it's rubbing that leads to a cycle where you are anxious every time you go to intercourse you're expecting discomfort there's no way that you can be properly aroused and the thing about sexual function is that if you're properly aroused your tissue will lubricate it will become engorged the blood vessels will dilate the um your vaginal um tissue and vulval tissue will become engorged and will become softer and you those symptoms will not happen but when you're expecting pain and, and discomfort with intercourse you don't get aroused properly and it's a vicious circle of more pain more discomfort more dryness and burning afterwards and then it becomes a bigger problem so again knowing that that's actually a very common thing to happen with with, with menopause is really important and what you can do about it to, uh, to, to either get away from that cycle or not get there in the first place is a really important discussion because again people don't talk about it and it happens to most women mm. to be honest it happens to most women 
I, I, I think it was in the early stages of uh, lockdown with COVID, and uh, maybe it was even before that I really, um, I did a huge amount of interviews and live chats about vaginal atrophy to, to the extent that I think a few months later, some followers kind of said, I think you've covered vaginal atrophy enough. <laughs> can, we, can we move on? But I always say, you know, put it on my gravestone, but it's don't self-diagnose trush because I find so many women do it. Then they go yeah. into the chemist and, you know, your pharmacist isn't going to know. If you're telling your pharmacist you've trush, they're going to help you with trush symptoms. But it's really important because sometimes even it's even just physically look, can you see thrush? You know, can, you can't, what is, can you see yeah. inflammation? And it's a bit like, um, you know, I think, you know, the way we've really encouraged to do the, um, you know, do a monthly breast check. I really think we really have to start an awareness or, you know, encourage women to get a mirror and really yeah. just start to understand how your vulva looks, how your vagina feels internally, so that then Absolutely. you will notice changes as they happen. And I know that's not easy, but it no, is very I, important. I, I, disagree, I disagree in a way. I don't think you can talk too much about vaginal atrophy because, as I say, <laughs> it is inevitable. It is inevitable. And, and again, it's a slippery slope, you know, to becoming either only occasionally sexually active, which wouldn't be the case otherwise, or for some women not being able to have sexual intercourse. And that again affects your self-worth, it affects your self-confidence, it affects your relationship, your marriage, all of those things. So I do think, you know, that you can't over talk about it. Um, and, and again, yeah, looking, knowing what's normal and, and more, more importantly, knowing what you can do about it. And the, the common sense about what does it mean like again, having discomfort with intercourse, getting into that cycle. Is, so how do you break it? Well, you take longer before you have intercourse. You know, you, a lot of women will come with problems with libido or, you know, issues around intercourse that are problematic. And sometimes you have, you know, it's just look, put work into it. If you, if you sex begets sex, if you put time aside, and you, you know, get dressed up and you, you know, spend time on the romance part of it and your self-worth and, you know, protect that part of yourself and your relationship. That's really important. You know, simple things like, you know, as I say, vaginal health, but taking time before having intercourse or before penetration to make sure that you're well lubricated, you're well aroused, that those symptoms of dryness are going to be minimized or disappeared altogether. Um, and, and, you know, just simple interventions, common sense often, but it's a case of thinking about it, being aware, and then allowing yourself to, to, to go and address it and improve things is often the light bulb moment as well. Mm. Mm. I, I would say, say I may, when I go to Maeve, we have such, we have such a laugh because like I, <laughs> I'm so paranoid about vaginal atrophy. Um, you know, so I, I, I was asking her the other day, I was like, how, how does it look Maeve? Do you think, you know, cause I use, I use a, a vaginal moisturizer because I want to make sure that, um, you know, I don't get myself into a situation, you know, that I have any symptoms we just mentioned. Um, but it's like, you know, I find for me, I find it fantastic in terms of, going, you know, maybe was there like saying things look really good. You've got good moisture or whatever. But as she knows, it's 
because I, I would imagine part of it is because I use a vaginal moisturizer um, because when you speak to so many women who are having so many issues, you kind of like, OK, well, what can you do to be preventive and to really kind of help you help yourself? Yeah. Um, and what do you think of? of Sorry, what Sorry just for vulval skin, again, not washing, you know, avoiding uh, any real products. You only need yeah. water on that skin. Mm -hmm. So shower gels, detergent products, strip the natural protective oils off the vulva and the external vagina and only lead to irritation. So only water on that skin. Again, sometimes just something as simple as Vaseline for women who are getting, you know, vulval um, chafing. Again, these, you know, and finding that, you know, certain underwears or tighter jeans are difficult to wear and uncomfortable for, to wear. No, nothing except water on that skin. And even just a little bit of Vaseline, which will waterproof the skin, provide um, moisturization and reducing chafing. Simple interventions like that are easily done and highly effective. And that's just to clarify, because I have worked with a woman who put Vaseline internally that's externally on the vulva area. Externally. Just, yes, externally. externally only. Yeah. I yeah. would say on, on the whole, using, you know, there are some good moisturizers out there, but, you know, if only using things internally, being very, very careful about that mm -hmm. and, and using them as little as possible or as little as necessary, yeah. uh, again, can be helpful and, and knowing what is out there because there are some very good products out there, but not that they are very specific. You do not yeah. want to use anything internally that should not be used internally. I completely yeah. agree there. And I think, too, I always kind of say if you are using a vaginal moisturizer or even a lubricant, I always yes. say to women, patch test it on your arm, your leg somewhere beforehand, because you never know what ingredients in it you might react to, you know, so. As you, you know there's some um there are some really good ones out there that have more natural products or sorry natural ingredients um but we can all react very very differently to them absolutely just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's completely yeah. safe yeah yeah to your skin and to that area mm. and uh, I, I guess uh, the other thing that I would probably say is, you know, if you are feeling there's any amount of sensitivity, I think you may have mentioned it earlier, is again to just make sure you're using a good lubricant as well. Oh, absolutely. Taking time, good lubricant, you know, taking time before, you know, penetration again, making sure you're well aroused and that that tissue is well moisturized, well lubricated. It just makes it makes all the difference. And again, it's sort of common sense. But, you know, you can end up just often, you know, women avoiding intercourse or being afraid of it. And, and that's hard to come back from. It's very easy. Actually, it's possible to come back from. But once you're down that far uh, without without being aware that this is common and that there are, there are things to do about it and, and just common sense, it, it, it is hard to come back from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Big, yeah, I think that's where the and I know you mentioned it earlier uh, God, knowledge is so, it, it, knowledge is the key to freedom in menopause, I think, because, you know, once you have uh, the knowledge of the choices, as you mentioned earlier, whatever that, that they are for you, it just changes the whole trajectory of these years. And it's so important to, to, to have that knowledge, you know. Um, so just in terms of, we, I know we've, we've, covered, we've covered a lot, but any last minute kind of top tips that you'd like to give to anyone that's listening? I suppose, uh, again, the conversation, be aware 
uh, in terms of bladder symptoms, don't try and avoid letting them slip too far. You know, if you can keep holding on and don't get up at night is really good advice for older age. Uh, prevention uh, is better than trying to come back from that. Um, be aware that these the vaginal changes will happen regardless and what you can do about them and uh, again don't be afraid of getting information looking for help uh, there are you know non-medical as you say nice natural products moisturizers things like that but if they're not working and again the problem with is, is as the further you go into the menopause the more profound those changes will be local estrogens are fantastic and um, the discussion around HRT have it it's always your choice but know what it can and can't do for you and what local estrogen treatments can or can't do for you and other interventions that are out there uh, for example laser those things know what's there look at what is right for you make your own decision seek help get the information there's so much out there and uh, you know make things as as good as possible and as easy as possible for yourself it's it's, it's really quite simple brilliant and as i mentioned earlier i will share all the resources um in the notes below so that um anyone interested can follow up on them and um, suzanne thanks so much uh for starting the conversation or expanding more on the conversation as we both know <laughs> we we could talk about it all day long so um but it is so important that we really support each other in terms of building the awareness and you know the understanding around it's all aspects of of women's health but um this area in particular so thanks very much and thanks everyone Thank for you, listening Catherine.